turn with me to Mark chapter 10, please. And we're going to continue our three-week mini-series. So if you're counting with me, this is the final week that you have to suffer through me. Next week, Pastor will be back in our pulpit preaching God's word to us. The title of our mini-series here has been Strategic Regrouping. Strategic Regrouping. Regrouping is something that takes place when a unit or an army steps back to reorganize themselves so that they can then move forward more effectively, so they can continue fighting. And a couple weeks ago, we really established that our church needs a strategic regrouping time. After COVID, we need to, to get back together, to rally together, to process what we've learned so that we can move forward together and advance the gospel this fall. Let's do a brief review here. We study the story of a demon-possessed boy in Mark chapter 9. And we ask the question, where do you turn in dire circumstances? Where do you turn when life gets really hard? And through this little story, we see or we saw that Christ has authority over all circumstances. But sometimes he allows circumstances that are hard to remain in our lives to teach us, to draw us closer to him, to grow our dependence on him and our faith in him. Last week, we looked at the story of the rich young ruler, and we were challenged to reorient our lives around Jesus. Is Christ essential to us, we had to ask, because this young man trusted in his wealth more than he did the Lord Jesus Christ. He walked away from eternal life because he couldn't imagine living life without his riches. Today's story from Mark chapter 10 identifies our key strategy moving forward. How do we advance as a church? Is it more activity? Is it more motion? Is it by being loud and bold? All of those things perhaps come into play, but we move forward together by serving. We move forward together by being servants. Christ calls us to follow his example of servanthood. So the question that we're asking today, like we have the last couple of weeks, there's been a key question. The key question today is, will you serve? Will you serve? One recent illustration of servanthood, of serving someone else, happened back in December of 2019. That's pre-COVID. Hard to believe that just a couple years ago was pre-all of this. But a, an example of serving happened on a, a cross-Atlantic flight. A young man named Jack had purchased a first-class ticket on his way home. A young man named Jack had purchased a first-class ticket on his flight home from New York City back to London. And as he waited for his flight at the gate, he met another passenger on the same flight, 88-year-old Violet. She was also returning home to England and had shared with Jack that it was her dream of someday flying in first class. So Jack decided to make her dream a reality. When he boarded the plane, he quietly went back to Violet and swapped seats with her, escorting her from economy all the way up to first class, and after getting her situated, he settled back down into the economy row that she had, which happened to be right across from the restrooms. One flight attendant said that he made no fuss and required no special attention at all the duration of that flight. Would you give up a first-class seat with someone else? I don't know if I would. <laughs> Never flown first-class, so I don't know what it's like. But here was a man that was kind and generous. Here was a man that, that rightfully gave, that gave up his rightfully purchased seat that came with it, the, the comfort, the privilege, the benefits, the status of that first class ticket. And yet, he gave it up 
because he thought of someone else's desires more than his own. Whether he realized it or not, this young man imitated the servanthood of Jesus. Jack, like Christ, gave up his position, lowered himself, and put someone's needs above his own, all without complaining. Jesus came to earth not to serve, not to be served, but to serve others. So our, our mission as his followers then is to serve as well. The servant, the follower is not greater than the master. So here's the big question. Will you serve? Will you serve? I think many of us would answer the question with, yes, I will serve. But how far are you, are you willing to actually go to serve? When it comes to being a servant, where do you draw the line? What is too much for you? I think if we're really being honest, we don't mind serving until we're treated like a servant. We don't mind doing things that help other people, but as soon as someone forgets us or tramples on us or what we think abuses us, we, 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 we don't stand for that. How far are you willing to go to be a servant? Our Lord Jesus didn't mind being treated like a servant. He spent his entire life serving the people around him, and ultimately he served all of humanity by dying on the cross for our sins. So we see today through our story, Jesus gave his life to serve others. Are we willing to give our lives to serve others as well? In Mark chapter 10, Jesus taught the disciples a crucial lesson on servanthood probably notice that it's at the end of this passage. It's in verses 42 through 45. But this lesson was a response to something that had just happened. Jesus didn't just randomly take his disciples and say, I want to teach you something, and the topic today is servanthood. This lesson was in response to a scenario. So for us to feel the full weight of this radical lesson, we need to understand what has just happened. We need to understand the story leading up to the lesson. So let's step back to verse 32 and start from the top to better understand this powerful lesson on servanthood. Mark 10, 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. The opening phrase of verse 32 gives us the backdrop for the story. This story takes place while they were on the road, on the way to Jerusalem. Though this was Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem, he would be crucified and killed just a few days later. Though that is what is looming, what position does Jesus take? He is leading. He is pressing forward. He is the one taking charge. And the disciples were baffled. They were amazed at this. They knew Jesus would die at Jerusalem, and yet here he was leading the way. The way the, the New King James translates the next phrase implies that the disciples were also afraid as they journeyed. And that's one way to look at it. There, you can also interpret it as there is another group of people traveling with Jesus, and this other group was afraid. Jesus is resolute. The disciples are amazed. The larger group of travelers they're with are afraid. And I think it refers to another group because the very next phrase, then he took the 12 aside, would not be necessary if they were traveling alone. They were probably traveling with other pilgrims to Jerusalem, which would be very common. Jesus took the disciples aside for a very specific reason. He is going to share with them 
more details about his upcoming death. And that's in verses 33 through 34. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now, this is the third time in three chapters, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, the third time that Jesus predicts his own death. And here we see that Jesus predicts his death extremely accurately. He even identifies the two phases of his condemnation, right? There's the Jewish phase. He will be betrayed. Judas, one of his own disciples, fulfills that prophecy. He will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders, and they will condemn him. They will condemn him not only as breaking the law, but condemn him worthy of death, which was, we might add, a wrongful conviction. But then there was a second phase, the Gentile phase. Because the Jewish leaders didn't have the authority to kill, to carry out the death penalty in this scenario, they brought him to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. And the Roman soldiers did every single one of those things. But Jesus' life does not end with his death. He clearly states that he will rise again the third day, which, praise the Lord, he does. And that's why the disciples, when they're baffled about, oh, right, he did say that he would rise again. That's why it's so interesting, because he says it clearly right here. I am going to rise again. But the disciples, as we'll see in a moment, weren't really tracking with him. They weren't thinking about what Jesus was saying. Now, these three verses we've just looked at, verses 32 through 34, play a very important role in Mark's gospel for a number of reasons. But for our purposes today, these three verses give us a glimpse into Jesus' mindset as he travels back to Jerusalem. Let's consider this for a moment. Jesus has literally the weight of the world on his shoulders as he prepares to suffer the wrath of God against sin. He's going up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, but he knows that he is the Passover lamb who will die on behalf of others. His death will be excruciating, physically, certainly, emotionally, but most importantly, it'll be an excruciating death spiritually. For the first time in eternity, God will be separated from God. The Father will turn his back on his Son. What a burden Jesus bears. What a burden, what a weight that he carries on his journey to Jerusalem, which, frankly, makes what happens next all the more appalling. What happens next? Verse 35, James and John come to him, and they're requesting seats of honor. Look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Soon after, we don't know how quickly after, maybe it was right away, Maybe it was a few hours later, but sometime after Jesus' burdensome prediction, James and John, two of Jesus' inner three disciples, come to him with a request. They simply ask, do for us whatever we ask. Sounds a little sketchy to you, doesn't it? In essence, they're asking Jesus to write them a blank check. Jesus, write us a blank check so we can spend it however we want. The Messianic Jewish Bible translates their requests like this. I like this. We would like you to do us a favor. Jesus, can you do us a favor? Well, (laughs) Jesus is not going to take the bait. 
But Matthew's account of this story adds an interesting wrinkle. Matthew chapter 20, and I think it's verse 28. Matthew notes that their mother made this request for them. These are grown men asking their mother to go before them to ask for privileges, to ask for seats of honor. Mark shows that the request ultimately came from these two disciples. Now what's more is that James and John's mother may indeed be Jesus' aunt, the sister of Mary, which makes James and John Jesus' cousins. It's unclear, but but if you compare the, the names of which ladies were at the cross of Jesus, it appears that James and John's mother is the sister of Mary. And if that's the case, James and John then would be guilty of trying to use an insider family connection to gain something from Jesus. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't take the bait. He doesn't promise them, sure, whatever you want. Well, we can find a way to work that out. He simply invites them to request their favor. So to me, if you're an observer of the story, you're asking yourself at this point, what is so important to James and John that they've put their mother up to asking Jesus for it? What is so important to them? Verse 37, they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Ah, here it is. They request that Jesus give them the greatest positions of honor in the coming kingdom. The word they used for sitting referred to a seat of honor and status. And it's through this request that their naked ambition is totally exposed. Though Jesus has just predicted his death and resurrection, they're still convinced he's going to set up a kingdom. And they want to get the early bird reservation on the presidential suite. That's what's going on here. After all, try to think their thoughts for them. Maybe they were thinking this. We followed Jesus from the start. We're part of his inner circle. There will only be two seats next to Jesus. So Peter, the other member of the inner three, eh, tough luck. He's going to have to deal with it. I mean, family first after all, right? It's got to be us. We might as well just make it formal right here, right now. So there'll be no no dispute when we get to Jerusalem. Well, James and John's ambition should serve as a warning for us. What is ambition? Let's make sure we're clear on what that is. Ambition, simply put, is a strong desire to do or achieve something. And it's not necessarily bad. But in most contexts, ambition carries a negative connotation. Which is why one of the definitions in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is this. An ardent desire for rank fame, or power. That is ambition. When the object of our ambition is me, pride has hijacked my desires and turned my ambition, truthfully, into a monster. Sinful ambition is a strong desire to exalt and advance me. And there are several lessons I think we can learn here that we should take note of. First, James and John sought to exalt themselves above others and even at the expense of others. Do you find that your thoughts revolve around how you can get ahead? Whether that's in the checkout line, in the cubicle, at the dinner table. How can I get ahead here in this scenario? Second, James and John totally missed the heaviness of Jesus' announcement. He just told them he was going to die. 
And I can picture them, again, I'm taking some creative liberties. I can picture them kind of nodding, maybe even, you know, moaning, groaning. Mm, yeah, mm, Jesus, mm. Oh, he's done. All right, now's our chance. It was in one ear and out the other for them. Ambition for self will cause us to lack awareness of what's going on around us. It can blind us to the needs of others. They were totally blinded to Jesus' needs. Jesus is carrying a heavy burden, and here they are, Asking for something totally inappropriate. Do you notice the needs of others? Do you care enough to notice the needs of others? Or has ambition twisted your radar so that you're only looking for yourself? Ambition, I think, is selfishness on caffeine. It's selfishness that has developed and budded into a pursuit of me above everything else. And you can see it clearly in this request, can't you? It's incredible that they asked for this with a straight face. And so with their cards on the table, their request now is known. Jesus responds in verse 38. He says to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? He attempts to rebuke them with this. This is not a compliment. Jesus says back to them, you don't know what you ask for. Guys, you have no clue what you're really asking for here. But it goes right over their heads. To try to help them see their own blindness, Jesus then follows with another question. Are you able to drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Now, the cup in the Old Testament often symbolized the wrath and the judgment of God. So when Jesus says, I'm going to drink the cup, he is referring to drinking down the judgment of God, taking God's wrath on himself. The baptism was a metaphor for being totally immersed into the suffering of this experience. Jesus would drink the cup to the bottom and be immersed into suffering. And he asked James and John, are you able to do this? Can you drink this cup? Are you going to be baptized with this same thing? The question was meant to provoke them into saying, Ooh, wait a minute, let's, let's pause here before we answer. They simply say to him in verse 39, we are able. It's like they didn't even think about it. It's just their reaction. Their ambition is so blind in them that they're just set on what they want. The phrase we are able is a single word in Greek. It would be like us answering someone affirmative. Are you able to drink the cup? Are you able to be baptized? Affirmative. It portrays a sense of confidence. And in this case, it was blind confidence. It was deceived confidence. Their ambition has deceived them. They believe they can endure what Jesus will face. But we know the rest of the story, right? They, along with the other ten disciples, the other nine disciples, do what? In the garden, they cut and run. They don't even take the cup to put it to their lips, so to speak. They are not able to bear the cup with Jesus. Perhaps Jesus raised his eyebrows at their answer. We are able? And he answers in verses 39 and 40, by settling the matter, he says to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand, my left, is not mine to give. It's prepared for those through, to whom it is prepared. Jesus affirms that they will experience what Jesus did. They will drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism, but it's not what they were really thinking. They will suffer for Jesus' name, but they didn't understand that now. In fact, James will be the first apostle martyred. 
He'll be the first of the 12 to die for his faith. John ends up being the last one to die, but he suffers perhaps the most persecutions of all because he lived longest. And if, again, if trying to create a little bit of a colorful interpretation here, maybe after he says, you will indeed drink, you will indeed be baptized, maybe they shoot a little side glance at each other like, ooh, see, we told him we could. Here it comes. We're getting it. We're, we're, we're going to get the honor. We're going to get the promise from Jesus. But what he says to them, what Jesus says to them in verse 40, clearly shows that that's not what Jesus was thinking. Where people sit in the kingdom is not Christ's decision. It's not even his privilege to give. Those seats are reserved for those God has prepared them for. And I wonder what James and John's reaction to this was. Were, were they heartbroken? You know, were they devastated thinking that they were this close to greatness? We were so close. Or were they kind of like, oh, well, never hurts to try. I don't know what it was. We don't know their reaction, but we do know the disciples' reaction. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. How the disciples heard about James and John's request, we don't know. But what we do know is when they found out, they were not happy campers. These guys were not excited about what James and John had attempted to do. The verb greatly displeased doesn't just mean that they were angry. It refers to anger aroused after a perceived slight. It's a jealous anger. You tried to pull a fast one on us? Oh, we're going to get it. We're going to get you back. That's the idea. And in fact, it's the same word earlier in Mark 10 used of Jesus. Well, why would Jesus be greatly displeased at someone else? It's in the story where the disciples restricted the little children from coming to him. It's the same word. Jesus was greatly displeased because he wanted the children to come to him. Jesus' anger was righteous. The disciples was not. Back in Mark 9, they already had a spirited argument about who was the greatest. They've already dealt with this topic. That's probably why James and John had to try to ask this thing on the side. They tried to sneak in this request because they've already discussed it and Jesus has already shut it down. Here they are having to learn the same lesson again. And maybe the other disciples were thinking, guys, you broke our truce. You tried to swindle us. Whatever they were thinking, their anger spilled out. They were jealous in their hearts. They were indignant at James and John. So let's pause now. The, the video, so to speak, the video of this scene right here. Let's pause it. Let's take stock of the emotions swirling. Jesus has just predicted his own death. His mind is focused on Jerusalem. He's leading the way. His heart, I think we can say, is very heavy. James and John have missed their opportunity for seats of honor. They've tried to slide one in, pull a fast one on the other ten. The rest of the disciples are fuming at this point, angry at James and John for scheming to supplant them. What, a, what an unbecoming picture, right? This is our Lord Jesus, the creator of the world, the eternal God, and these are the guys he surrounds himself with? But before we rush to judgment, we have to admit that these emotions are far too present in our own schedule and in our own routine, are they not? Ambition, pride, anger, jealousy, scheming, resentment, manipulation. That describes us just like it describes them. And it's here 
in this mood, in this environment, in this atmosphere that Jesus says, we're going to learn a lesson. We're going to learn about radical servanthood. The radical lesson on servanthood found in verses 42 through 45 has three simple parts to it. First of all, Jesus teaches what servanthood is not. What servanthood is not. To make sure that we have the right idea in our minds. Look with me at verses 42 through 43. But Jesus called them to himself, as he often did, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Christ's followers do not imitate the world's leadership. Let's take a moment to really understand these phrases. Jesus first draws their attention to how the Gentiles exercise leadership. The Gentiles, the, the, the world around us, lords their power over their followers. They exercise authority over them. They function as despots and tyrants, ruling by fiat, strong-arming everyone else into submission. These two phrases describe people who lead by the power of their authority. If you've done any reading on leadership styles or leadership levels, you'll recognize immediately that leading by authority is the lowest level of leadership. Simply leading because you're in charge, rather than because of competence, experience, knowledge, relationships, or the highest level, which is character leadership or servant leadership. Worldly leaders will seize power and then use their power to dominate and domineer and force others to follow. And we see that in our world today, do we not? Maybe you've seen that play out this week. So don't miss what Jesus says next. He says, quote, yet it shall not be so among you. The NIV translation uses just four words to interpret this phrase. Not so with you. Not so with you. This authoritarian leadership, this lust for power, this domineering, controlling, ruler mentality has no place among Jesus' followers. It has no place in the church. Leading by force is sinful. That's why Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter, rebuked this type of leadership. 1 Peter 5.3, instructing pastors not as being lords over those entrusted to you. That's the same word found here in Mark 10. And lest we miss the full weight of Jesus' rebuke, this command is not simply for us who lead the church. This is not just if you're a manager at work. We all must reject the authoritarian mindset of the world. We all must lay aside the domineering leadership, the domineering mentality as we interact with our families, maybe as we parent our children, have relationships with other people. Because, because we all gravitate toward the mindset of a master, do we not? We all gravitate toward the mindset of a master, the mindset of I'm in charge, I'm in control, others will listen to me, I don't have to bend for anyone else. We need to guard against this mindset. Here are a few ways we can recognize an authoritarian mindset, the mindset of a master. Are these things true of you? We are more authoritarian than servant if we get angry when people don't listen to us or don't follow our advice. If we shut down discussion and refuse to hear someone else's opinion. We have the mindset of a master 
if we do not recognize the contributions of others and don't thank others. If we're critical and withhold compliments while frequently nitpicking at others. Maybe you've known someone that seemingly had a sixth sense for finding fault. That's the mindset of a master. If we hold others to higher standards than we hold ourselves, we're not servants. If we are better at alienating others than working with others, we have the mindset of a master. If we take credit for success and blame others for failure, that's the mindset of a master. And Jesus says, not so with you. If you really want to know if you need to grow in this area, I invite you to ask your spouse or a close friend. And if you argue with them about it, you've just indicted yourself. So if you do this, be ready to listen. Be humble enough to say, Lord, how can I grow? Use another person's perspective in my life to help me change. Jesus says that this domineering mindset must have no place amongst us. Christ's followers don't imitate the world's leadership. So what are we to do then? What are we to actively take on? And that's the mindset of a servant. The second half of verse 43 and verse 44 says this, but whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Now the world often symbolizes an organizational flowchart with a pyramid. Something like this, right? The traditional employment pyramid. You have the peon grunt workers at the bottom. That's probably where most of us are. Then you've got supervisors and managers and the CEO, the king at the top. And the more that you get promoted, the more power you get, the more privilege you get, the more money you make, all that sort of thing. This is the typical structure that our world projects. But with these two sentences, what does Jesus do? He flips the pyramid upside down. He flips the pyramid upside down. That the greater you become, the more of a servant you become. In God's eyes, the great ones are those who serve. A servant was a person who gave himself to meet another person's need. Think of, in a small way, a server, a waiter or waitress at a restaurant. Their job is to wait on you, to take your order, to make you comfortable, to bring you food. We get antsy if they take too long, right? That's how impatient we are sometimes. The job of a server is to make the patron feel comfortable. Jesus defines greatness not with power, but with service. Then he redefined what being first is all about. He says that advancement does not come by ambition. Maybe he cast a sideways glance at James and John. Certainly one of the disciples did at this point. Advancement does not come by ambition, but by slavery. Lest we move too quickly and miss the weight of this word, slavery was something that was to be shuddered at. Children are born with a desire to be first. Some people never outgrow that desire. To be first, in God's eyes, is to voluntarily take the place of a slave, a doulos. To advance in God's economy, you must indenture yourself to others. To voluntarily lower yourself. A slave in the ancient world was a person who was considered the property of another. They were under the complete control of their master. That's radical. Greatness 
and advancement according to God is achieved by voluntarily lowering ourselves, looking for the needs of others, and then meeting those needs without thought of our comfort, our preferences, our rights, or our desires. You say, ooh, that's really hard. Yeah. So how do we apply that? The first step has to be accepting this. We have to say, yes, that's right. That's where it has to start. Because I think a lot of Christians even would look at what Jesus said and go, "Mm, no, that's not it. I'm going to argue back to God on this one. We have to first accept this mindset. Will you embrace what Jesus is saying? Will you rearrange your values so that in your mind, lowering yourself to serve is a good thing and not something to be avoided? Those who refuse to accept this mindset do not fly under Christ's flag, do not walk and march to his drumbeat. They fly the Gadsden flag, the one that peeked on the screen a minute ago. Let's see if we can get it back there. This is the Gadsden flag. You, maybe you didn't know that was the name of it, but you recognize this flag, the snake coiled with the four words, don't tread on me. I'm convinced that this is where we have to start to apply this lesson. We have to confront the don't tread on me mentality that lodges deep down inside of us. It's in my heart. I don't like it when people tell me what to do. I'd rather other people serve me. I'd rather them sacrifice their comforts to make mine a reality. We all have to wrestle with this idea of don't tread on me. Only then can we practice servanthood. Well, how do we practice servanthood? There's a whole lot we could talk about with this. But I want to draw your attention to one other passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How do we go about being a servant? This passage offers several ways. Look at it with me. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, same idea that James and John had, or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So how do we practice servanthood? Let me give you, I think, three or four quick ways here from this passage. First, we refuse to let our selfish ambition and our conceit control us. This is the same problem James and John had. Their ambition to advance themselves got in the way of Christ's kingdom. Their exaggerated self-evaluation, that's what the idea of conceit is, an exaggerated self-evaluation, prodded them to request seats of honor when they should have been comforting Jesus at his upcoming death. Instead, so first, refuse to let selfish ambition or conceit control you. Second, cultivate a lowliness of mind. Cultivate a humility of spirit. That means we consider God to be all, others to be more important, and self to be nothing. That's, again, a radical reorienting of our values. But that's what Jesus is calling us to do. This mindset leads us to value, third, value others as better than us, and prompts us to watch out for the needs and interests of others. We need to install a servant radar in our minds so that we become more and more aware of other people's needs. Am I sensing needs? Can I meet those needs? Can I give up something of my own to go and help someone else? This is really hard. But by the grace of God, he can change us from ambitious, self-conceited, 
self-centered people to Christ-like servants. It's only the grace of God that can do this in our hearts. And if we need motivation to do this, all we have to do is look at verse 45. For even, this is Jesus still speaking, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to earth to receive the comforts and privileges of power. He came on a mission, and that was to serve. His entire life modeled service to others. Over and over again, his daily routine revolved around meeting the needs of other people. Even when he was trying to get away and relax a little bit, he still spent time to meet the needs of others. But Jesus' service wasn't simply in the daily course of life. The culmination of his life was what? His death on the cross for our sins. The ultimate service that he could make, that he could render. His death wasn't for his own sin because he had none. His death was for our sins. Even his death and resurrection was service. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And that ransom was an eternity-altering act of service. Back in verse 40, Jesus told James and John that the seats of honor were not his to give. He uses that same word give right here in this verse and says, what is mine to give is my own life and I will give it freely for you. He didn't come to give away perks and privileges, but to give his own life as a ransom. A ransom, you may know, is the price required to release someone from slavery. If you're here today and you've never received Christ's payment for your sins, what are you waiting for? Why will you insist on paying for your own sins when eternity is not long enough to do so? Jesus has already told us that he's given his life to pay for your sins. For those of us who follow him, we have to recognize that Jesus gave his life to serve us. Are we willing to give our lives to serve other people? How, how can we, who have received the benefits of Christ's servanthood, not pass that on to other people? How can we be so ungrateful to say, yes, I'll take your service to me, but no, I'm not going to serve others? Starting next week, we will begin to have a ministry fair. There are a number of ministries that we have here that need volunteers, simple ways for you to serve on behalf of others. To give up maybe your preferences, maybe your comfort a little bit, and to say, I'm, I'm going to give myself to advance someone else. In a few weeks, we have what's called Operation Saturation. There's a handout in your bulletin this week. We are praying fervently that God would win souls to Christ through our efforts of evangelism. There's a whole lot to do with that. Stuffing packets, bringing them to people, praying. Would you consider praying about how you can be involved in a service, an act of ministry like this? But service... These two things are more corporate, church-wide. Service does not simply revolve around what we do together. And it's not simply an external set of actions either. Let's not get the wrong idea. To sincerely follow the Lord's instructions, we have to ask for His grace to develop servants' hearts. Because it is entirely possible to serve on the outside, but not on the inside. To do servant-like things without a servant's heart. Maybe we're serving for the praise of man. Maybe we're serving for recognition. Maybe we're serving out of a sense of duty or because of guilt. Maybe we're serving because it ultimately benefits me. But that's not Christ-like service. The greatest gauge 
to measure if you have a servant's heart or if you're doing servant-like things is this. How do you react when you are treated like a servant? How do you react when you are treated like a servant? If you believe that you are a servant and you've taken on that heart and that mindset, it's not going to bother you. If you're serving for any other reason, you're going to struggle. Jesus did not simply do servant-like things. He was a servant, which is why he wasn't bothered when he was treated like one. He was a servant for us. So as we advance the gospel this fall, we have to move forward as an army of servants. Our army becomes stronger the more of us surrender to this call. We have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to reach maybe even thousands of people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we are self-centered, we're full of ambition or self-conceit, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, we will thwart what God is doing. I think we, we all need to grow. Maybe I won't speak for you. I know I need to grow in this area. We all have progress we need to make. So here's where we'll conclude. Are you willing to honestly wrestle through the challenging implications of this text? Are you honestly going to sit down and say, yes, Lord, I'll do what you want? Or are we going to leave today walking out unchanged? Oh, nice sermon, nice service. Yep, everything was nice, but it doesn't affect me. Our prayer is that we would change and that we would answer the call in the affirmative. Yes, we will serve. Would you bow with me for prayer this morning? As we conclude our service, it's a daunting call, it's a radical call, but it's a call that Jesus stoops down to pick us up with. When we surrender to be servants, the Lord Jesus reaches his arms down and encourages us. Father, we pray that all across this room, individuals would be answering the call to serve. You have given us a, a wonderful privilege of impacting the world around us by your grace. Through our feeble efforts, we, as Pastor preached a few weeks ago, we are simply broken vessels, cracked pots, earthen vessels, carrying a glorious message. And we pray that the example of our Lord would be the, the lifestyle, not only of individual believers here, but the testimony of our church. That we would be a church that serves, that serves one another, that serves our community, that serves our Lord Jesus. If there's any here today that has not received the ransom payment that Christ made, we pray that you would work in their hearts to prompt them to receive Christ. Perhaps they need to speak with one of us after. We pray that they would do this. Give us grace in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.